0: That was anxiety, Mm. a massive form of it. And I I didn't, again, not having been diagnosed with anything until, you know, my early 30s, that was like a a barrier point for me because, or a breaking point, because I, I, I just was having such a difficult time talking. But after that, it became a little bit easier to do it, you know, the next time, the next week that group met because they wanted me to do like an introduction where I was interested in programming and doing student activities. And I just had a really, really rough time being able to even just say a sentence mm-hmm. with regards to that. Hello, welcome to Square Peg's Podcast.
1: In this podcast, we share first-hand experiences of neurodiverse graduate students and faculty members.
0: I'm your sometimes guest host, Lexi Hane,
1: And I'm the host, Arisagi. Welcome to today's episode, where we delve into the remarkable journey of Anthony. Anthony is currently a PhD student at Stony Brook University working on protein purification and organic chemistry. He also has a PhD in organic and bioorganic chemistry from Johns Hopkins University. Before starting his second PhD, Anthony was a postdoctoral researcher for two years at the National Cancer Institute, and before that, he was a postdoctoral researcher in Harvard University for two years. Anthony's message is a message of hope and resilience. I really appreciate Anthony's openness to discuss his deeply personal experiences with us. Also, we want to hear your thoughts. What was your biggest takeaway from this episode? If you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know, we would really appreciate it. On with this show. Good morning Anthony. Good I'm morning. very ha- I'm very happy to talk to you again. I I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you very much for accepting this invitation. So, let's let's get into the conversation by a brief introduction of yours and maybe if you can add some information how we got to know each other. That would be helpful to our listeners.
0: So my name is Anthony Stapon. I'm a graduate student at Stony Brook University in the uh, pharmacology department. We initially met through the Center of Inclusive Education, which is a department at Stony Brook University that helps with uh, diversity and inclusion. As someone who has had a good deal of adversity in his life, you know, I have a diagnosis of autism and as well as schizoaffective disorder which is uh, schizophrenia and bipolar and, and an anxiety. I have a few other disorders, but anxiety, schizoaffective, and autism are three main ones. We, we initially met, I guess we did a like a round table discussion on uh, November 1st. at the it was a group of us at the Center of Inclusive education. All of us had some type of neurodiversity element, primarily autism. And we had about, it was about an hour, hour and a half discussion with the four of us about life experience. And I I think the main thing that the reason why I'm back is because I had such a unique story to to my life, having been undiagnosed with anything until 33, 34, Hmm. and excelling in academia and academics. and. I have a PhD from Johns Hopkins University, which was from 2004. I have Harvard postdoc experience from 2004 to 2006 and ended up getting a job. And everything kind of hit me at once with regards to autism, the schizoaffective disorder, and anxiety. And I ended up going homeless for an extended period of time. After that, I had some a lot of rebuilding, mm-hmm. uh, per, per, personally a lot of rebuilding. My family found me in, let's see, it was 2009. I came back home. I, I would describe the, the mental illness and the neurodiversity element as like a bell curve. I, I, I had a peak. And then things kind of fell off. And when they found me, I was at the tail end of the uh, mm-hmm. the, 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 the maximum aptitude of the of the uh, disordered, probably high mental state of a five year old. When I came back home, I, I was really defeated and beaten down, and it took took a lot of rehabilitation and therapy and everything to get back to where I am now as a graduate student. Mm-hmm in that program and that's primarily why they recognize me as being under under the diversity and inclusion umbrella mm-hmm.
1: so there's just so much interesting about your background when we talked first I I I really got inspired by your life journey and I was hoping that I can get you back to do an episode of the podcast. And I'm very happy that we are doing this. To contextualize it better, I I want to start from your early childhood, your experiences, how school looked like. Maybe let's think about the primary school experience, some highlights, good and bad. Again, for our listeners, for maybe even younger listeners or parents to see, for example, like how it Evolved to become who you are, actually.
0: So, uh, yeah, I, I was, you know, not diagnosed, but I was a, an odd ball kid in, in that I was not part of real groups of mm. other kids. I was bullied in high school, primarily a little bit in, in grade school. So that was, you know, that's a bad, you know, obviously a bad thing that was part of my, my experience a positive thing with regards to me growing up, you know, in that age range of grade school and high school, I would have to say is like my interest in aptitude in science.
1: Mm-hmm. Just tell us more about that.
0: I was always drawn into science. You know, astronomy was like mm-hmm. my first thing as a as a child. I had a telescope. Mm-hmm. I always was looking at the stars and the planets. High school, I started getting into, you know, the more fine tuned topics of biology and chemistry, which is kind of where my interest lies now. Mm -hmm. Just anything science in general as a kid, I was, you know, I had a little chemistry set, you know, in grade school, high school. I was always tinkering around with that. Mm -hmm. Were you a loner? Yes. I I did have some friends, but I, I was primarily a loner in therapy now. This is starting to come out as being very instrumental to how my personality formed. We we moved around a lot as a family. My parents divorced probably when I was about eight. Mm -hmm. My mother had custody and had gotten sick with her own mental illness and issues and I ended up going to two or three different relatives um, Mm -hmm. before high school until I went to live with my father for four years which brought some stability. Mm -hmm. Um, But the switching and the moving kind of got me to just be very quiet as a kid. I think mm-hmm. the, the one thing, you know, with regards to interest in science that I just vividly remember as being a hallmark and characteristic is that I don't know if, I don't even know if it happens today, but there was a test called the ACT test back in the day, mm-hmm. which actually other than, you know, different from the SAT. Delved into it and judged and scored science aptitude and reasoning and reading things and stuff. And I ended up getting a 99 percentile on that. So it's like the real only story I can think of because I was just a standard kid with science. I was just into, you know, reading.
1: What What was it exciting for you? I mean, for example, like to give you an idea, I had this aptitude early on. And when I look back, I was using science. As a refuge, essentially, I had a very uncertain also upbringing, and like it was my calm place was it was where I felt secure, in control, essentially.
0: Yeah, I, I could agree with being in control and feeling in control to, with the science because it was something that you know I excelled at, I understood, mm-hmm. was concrete. There wasn't really any debate about you know scientific facts and figures and i mean there's a lot of memorization but there's also just a lot of understanding of systems in a scientific sense i mean going into my main interest of organic chemistry and chemistry there's like mechanistic detail and how things flow and kind of like a story can be just written in how reactions take place but as a kid i just maybe it was just the the fact that it was just always there mm-hmm. I, I was good at it I had interest in broad science the astronomy followed me from place to place and and family member a family member that I was living with mm-hmm. that lasted until about college you know, and then it kind of just it, it fell off but that was definitely a source of you Know again, a solitary thing. I you know it's not like I did astronomy and telescope stuff with friends mm-hmm. um, at night, but it was always just there to have the telescope, and I could go out and just be by myself and have some kind of like level of peace. Mm-hmm. I, I, I guess you know, in seeing that the, the planets and the stars,
1: yeah, it has definitely played a role bringing some order and sensing. Making sense of your 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 childhood essentially at that point was that something that was celebrated or acknowledged by by school?
0: I was um I was doing I was you know doing well in classes, so I was encouraged. I can't remember their names. I does one professor or one teacher, my AP science teacher, AP chemistry teacher, and chemistry teacher, uh, Mr. McDonald from Sachem High School. I'm sure he's retired now, that encouraged me and was formative in like a college search sense mm-hmm. and fostering, you know, my interest in chemistry. So that that's like a really positive memory with, a, with like a faculty interaction. Some elements of my family were encouraging, but I, I was so, I was such an aloof kid. I was like, I was just different. The difference internally with me didn't become a factor in issue until like college. Hmm. But being a kid being different and not being able to process or know that, I I think, you know, some of my most of my family, I was the first person in my family to go to college Hmm. on both sides of my mother and my father. So there was elements in family members that probably was just not able to be grasped what college meant and how important it was to me. You know, I'm not faulting anyone with regards to that thinking, but it was like, you know, well, no one ever went to college. Why? Why do I have to go to college? Because no one in the family ever crossed that academic barrier before. But every everyone generally was supportive, except for you know maybe a little bit of the unknown of like you know the college scenario. I guess.
1: Mm -hmm. So, how was it in the college? How was your experience?
0: I had a lot of friends. I, I think being in a dorm kind of pushes that on you. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. It's just that it's just everyone is looking to make friendships in, in a college dorm, especially when you're a freshman. And I'm friends with, although I may not talk with them regularly, but like Facebook and where I'm in touch and we're you know, from college and stuff like that. But I that's when I began to realize that there was something internally with me that was a little, a little bit different.
1: Mm-hmm. In what sense?
0: I, I just had difficulty with social relationships, mm-hmm. both with regards to friendships and being able to be around, and this is a major factor even to, to, to today with you know my interactions, but being able to be around social elements for an extended period of time. Or small talk, Mm -hmm. or being able to just just to hold hold on to friends, Mm -hmm. because it's almost like you know, well, you know, comes the aloofness that can come come across as being not interested in a friendship Mm -hmm. or not possessing an interest in maintaining a friendship, because it's like I have like a like a social battery. And I know a lot of people with Mm. autism have this as well, that if that battery gets drained or anything, you just need to be by yourself essentially at some point and shut the door. And because I used to be, i would be very quiet. You know, I would have a group of friends over on, you know, five feet away from me, I'd be by myself. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, there was just a lot of, a Lot of difficulty with social stuff in
1: college. Mm-hmm. How about academics?
0: Academics I excelled at. Okay. Um again the science, you know, I was a biochemistry major at Pace University in Westchester County. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had a I had a field day in college, to be honest with you, for the most part. I was heavily active in student activities, as were a lot of my friends. Mm-hmm. But I do remember the first time that I expressed an interest in getting involved in because I was involved with a couple of things in high school too, uh, like pottery club was I think the one thing that I was you know I was doing pottery at some point. But there was a programming committee in college, and uh, the the resident assistant suggested I go to their meeting, and I, I did. And this is the first time I'm speaking in front of a group of people in college. Mm-hmm. You know I'm, maybe there for. Two months into the semester, and I was stammering my speech. And in retrospect, that's that was anxiety, hmm. a massive form of it. And I, I didn't again, not having been diagnosed with anything until you know my mid, early thirties. That was like a, a a barrier point for me because, or a breaking point because. I I just was having such a difficult time talking, but after that, it became a little bit easier to do it, you know, the next time, the next week that group met, because they wanted me to do, like, an introduction where I was interested in programming and doing student activities, and I just had a really, really rough time being able to even just say a sentence Mm -hmm. with regards to that.
1: Mm -hmm. And you said you had some challenges, so I suspect most of them were related to social interactions, right? It wasn't related to anything uh, academics-related. Um,
0: with regards to social, inter- yeah, I mean, everything was, I mean, I was very quiet. You know, I, I there would be people that I would want to interact with, but I just didn't know how to breach that f- initial conversation of small talk to be friends with people or to chat with people Mm -hmm. this has also been a hindrance how
1: how did you interpret that that like was was that was that annoying
0: for you at all i thought something was wrong with me oh i see oh yeah I, i i thought something was wrong with me and i i couldn't put my finger on what was wrong with me I never really spoke about this with like at the time with anyone that it was because I, I just didn't understand, you know, I didn't know what anxiety was or what autism was. And and when these behaviors came out of being quiet or wanting to talk to, say, a girl that I saw in the cafeteria, and and not being able to either get the courage up to do that or Or just, you know, a group of guys that were in class or something, not even like a romantic thing, or just, you know, there was a girl or a group of guys or whatever it was, and not being able to just be able to figure out how to even start that conversation. You know, I had no friends in high school. Again, the bullying was one thing, but I had very, very few friends, a couple kids on my block. Fortunately, that changed with college. But... I was just very it's difficult to put myself in that thinking because it's just been quite some time from that. but I just I knew something internally with me was just different
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I, I couldn't put my finger on what it what it was. I think our
1: listeners would be interested to know a little bit about your experience with bullying also and how what the impact of that was on at back then and also even now if you can isolate it
0: one of the things that i i guess i did because the bullying and the lack of friends the internet just started Mm -hmm. about the time that i was in high school like aol i was online a lot i was into computer games Hmm. things that were more or less you know solitary activities because there wasn't online gaming but it was just You know, you had the disks, and you had to swap the disks out in the old computers, and I was playing, like, flight simulators primarily. I didn't really have an interest in aviation, but I just had, you know, a computer that, and I just played what I could because, the, you know, the requirements for gaming back then was just, you know... Stringent, I guess, with regards to graphics and things, but most games were sixteen or thirty-two colors back then. I mean, I was I was on the PC. I think my favorite game was F. I think it was called F nineteen Stealth Fighter. And I, you know, I liked it because you could, you know, stealth into you know Cold War scenarios against Russia, or you do be have the actual wartime scenario. You could, you know, I, I I spent a lot of time online. I, you know, helping people either in like mental health or autism communities, but the gaming has definitely attracts. I think people with autism or mental health issues is a means to help cope and escape from reality and have some, you know, enjoyable downtime. It's something that, you know, I'm going to be pushing 50 in a couple of years and I'm still gaming, but I know people Mm -hmm. who are in their eighties gaming and I know people with, you know several different types of mental health challenges or autism and and they're so into the gaming aspect. isn't that a time it, sink it's huge you? now i mean like these headphones it, it is a time sink something i spend at least a couple hours a day but i'm not intense in the gaming i'm i'm there mm-hmm. more for the social aspect in a way um I, I i do play a little bit you know maybe maybe out of the you know i'm online constantly. You know, when I usually get home, if I'm not running errands. So I'm there for the social aspect. I may play a fraction of the time, but it's the chatting on Discord and and the voice chats and rating and all that stuff that I think it helps an aspect, a segment of the population that has social difficulties to actually be social. And then the AOL I was on message boards at the time. You know, I, one of my favorite shows was Star Trek Next Generation. But I didn't know that when the show came out in 80, 89. It wasn't until three or four seasons in that I was homesick from work. I was working in a family business on the weekends. And I was homesick. And I caught an episode, I think the fourth season or something. And then I just started watching constantly. And, that, and Star Trek became... An avenue for me to like almost connect with the science in a way and Mm. technology and and the, the idea that, you know, things would just be better in the future. Um, What was the family business? That was a a beverage store. So so, soda, beer, my cousin owned it. So I, I was just working there on the weekends. I lived about I guess maybe thirty miles away and with school and everything, it wasn't anything I could get access to. So during the summer I would, you know, work there, you know, almost daily, five days a week. And then the weekends during during the school year, you know, mm-hmm. after I was about sixteen or so, that started and lasted until uh, until my later years of college when I was home. Going back to the bully experience, if
1: you can tell us I mean, some incidents that stood with you, how long it took, and again, any of the impact that, the impact back then, and also if there are some lingering effects now.
0: Yeah. So uh, with regards to the bullying experience, I, it was mainly on the school bus, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, with most of these incidences. And I don't know if it's because the driver, you know, I was in the middle of the back of the bus. But I had stuff thrown in my hair. Mm -hmm. I may have been punched once or twice on the bus. I was definitely followed off the bus one day and someone punched me and I kind of ran home and it was following me home. And when I got home, my father, I was living with my father at the time and my father's roommate because they were, you know, splitting the rent on the house. I told him what happened and he ended up calling the police because I think I had. Swelling or something. I but anyway, there was. I, I know the cops went to the person who was bullying me, but there was no cut or anything, so they didn't really pursue it any further. But and in school, I was just. I don't really remember specifics, but I you know it was verbal mm-hmm. stuff in school because it wasn't really you know school back then. You didn't really fight, yeah, or anything in in during you know class hours or anything. But I was teased. You know, I was also overweight by a lot until I was around 17 or 18 when I just just decided to start jogging one day, and I really became Forrest Gump. Hmm. I, I, you know, running was a thing, and I, I'm starting to lose weight now because as we get into this, you know, my story. I did become addicted to alcohol, and then you know I, I switched that off for caffeine, and lately it was food. So <laughs> now we realized I was addicted to food. So I, I actually cut back on on the eating bit too. But
1: so you you finished your college, and then you went to grad school, right? How was your yeah. experience doing your grad school first first PhD and masters? Um,
0: also. Fi- yeah, master's and a PhD. Finished college. I ended up finishing college at the top of my class. Mm. I was given an award by the board of trustees. Wow. And that was like a highlight. And I was something I was working towards, I guess, as some means of feeling better about myself. I mean, these student activities, you know, kind of made me feel like I was accomplishing something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I carried on through graduate school. Graduate school was a little bit more of a difficult time because it was a little bit more intense academically. I I just had to spend a lot more time focused on studies in the first year, and that's also about the same time, maybe two years in that the the drinking. I I the drinking is a funny thing because. Someone initially tried to get me a drink in college, and I told them I I can't. And out of somewhere out of the blue, I blurted out I have a medical condition. Mm. And I I almost tie that to autism of knowing that drinking was wrong because I knew there were some people with alcohol problems in my family. A friend, in like when I was, you know, just about 21, suggested a beer isn't going to hurt you. You know, we're at a baseball game, let's have a beer. You know, this is my first drink, essentially, and it, it exploded. You know, the, the drinking so it became a massive problem when I was up at Harvard, and and, and increased all throughout my graduate studies. Was
1: it some sort of self medication in response it, to the anxiety? I mean, at the, yes. at least the beginning of it.
0: The drinking typically is a form of. I mean, if you're an alcoholic, you're. You're medicating something mm-hmm. usually, and there's another saying with regards to drinking and and alcoholism is that your thinking was distorted even before you started drinking. And internally, my thinking was not right. Um, what was or, it? Well, I just I, I had self-esteem issues. Okay. I had the the undiagnosed bipolar. At the time, an undiagnosed autism and an undiagnosed anxiety. And all three of them pounded me to like a, a zero net self-worth.
1: Despite doing so well academically.
0: And so well, you know, and I, I think the reason why I did so well academically and even with the the, the student activities that I was involved with was because it gave me a form of self-worth, I okay. guess, that I just didn't have... I didn't have back then internally and I could never find a source of self worth that it gave me a sense of purpose in a way graduate school, just going back to the graduate school, I, I, I excelled again, you know, did very well in graduate school, but the friends kind of fell off. I, I had lab mates, but because I was living in an apartment building now and not a dorm And the drinking picked up, Mm -hmm. you know, my internal, (laughs) my internal priorities changed from trying to make friends to when was I going to be drinking next?
1: Even, even during the grad school, when you were when, when you were finishing, or it was um, after you like finished? Like the latter
0: part? Well, no, I, I started drinking probably around 21, and I was in grad school to about 29. Oh, okay. It was a progression. I see. You know, the standard alcoholic progression of drinking starts out, you know, it ends up being helpful. You know, a lot of alcoholics will say that their drinking at the beginning was helpful with regards to their mental state, that it worked as a self-medication. How did you feel? initially i was fine i felt good about myself social lubricant type thing i was socializing a little bit more i was involved with the student government in graduate school so i was kind of you know all over the place and then there was a switch in which i then kind of became a lot more withdrawn as time got on i was still academically successful but the the switch from being with friends was not as much as a priority as it was to when I was going to be drinking again or drinking with friends, let's say..
1: Mm-hmm. And ever like early on, did you ever think that it's wrong or or you're losing control or it's excessive? Anything how long did it take for you to realize that there is a problem?
0: It took about a good eight to nine years wow. when when it was a problem. And I never noticed the thing with addiction is internally, you can never pick this stuff up until it's like too late. You're either completely engulfed. In it. I mean, it's, it's all the same food, caffeine, drugs, alcohol, gambling, until you are neck deep in it. And you want to try to quit, but you can't because you're addicted. And people, you know, I had this conversation with maybe family or something that didn't understand addiction too well. And it's like, I wanted to stop, but I couldn't. I was at the, you know, the liquor store and, you know, buying more alcohol. And it's like, well, why don't you just not go to the liquor store? And that's not a thing that you could do Mm. mentally because you just, you need it. And until, you know, a circumstance occurs that either you are drunk in the street in the gutter and you no longer can purchase it or you can no longer procure it or you have some kind of mental clarity and it breaks the cycle. And that's kind of what happened with me when I was in my postdoc. So going back
1: to your, because it's just like, it's very interesting. And I suspect the reason I'm staying um, Mm -hmm. on this line of questioning is is I suspect that there are other students that they are using substances to Mm -hmm. to control their anxiety, to improve their self-image, to cope with something, you know? So do you have any, anything that they can think about that is an alarm or a flag that they have to pay attention to that you could you could pay attention to
0: if you have a diagnosis of i would say primarily the about you know autism can be a thing because of the repetition you know you, it may sound weird but you start drinking nightly and it could be you know i i like my schedules and and my my routines and i i don't know back then what element of my personality it could have been bipolar you know it could have been the autism it could have been the it could have been the anxiety it could have been all three but i just started getting into a routine where i was just drinking i guess i was getting addicted at that point and i just didn't i wasn't aware of it i knew i knew we had a problem with alcohol in the family i didn't think it would happen to me why did you think that way Well, because I, you know, I was in school, and yeah, I was so, I was Mm -hmm. smart. I I was always in control of myself in a way. My upbringing as a child, because of the lack of control around me, I I tended to control myself, and it's come out in therapy recently as a response that I would control my emotions or my behaviors and and be very quiet and, and alone and solitary, but. And the sneaky thing with the alcohol is that it just, it's pervasive, especially if you have a mental illness or neurodiversity diagnosis that it can just take off on you when you least expect it.
1: Mm. Yeah. The attention aspect of it. At some point, I mean, like, it was not to a concerning extent, but… I personally realized that actually the reason I'm drinking is not just to relax or have fun. It is my anxiety is very high, you know, so.
0: I couldn't even define anxiety until 10, 10 12 years ago. That's very interesting you say that. I, yeah, I, I knew, I, I mean, I knew anxiety was a thing. I didn't think it bothered me. Like I said, there was something internally wrong with me that I thought but I couldn't figure out what it was because I didn't know what anxiety was or the actual definition of it or if it applied to me because no one ever told me, you have an anxiety problem. I never presented one, really. Or if I did, no one ever said, you know, this is anxiety or this is autism Mm -hmm. behavior until way, way later after I was homeless and had gotten sick that, that that conversation ever take place. I I, Someone could have told me I had these things perhaps in my early 20s, but would I believe them? I I don't know. Mm -hmm. Probably not. I was very stubborn, I guess, maybe with regards to being sick because my mother had a mental disorder and I thought I was doing so well that I, I couldn't have been affected by that. I'm not really sure, to be honest. So you finished
1: your grad school, you started your postdoc. What what did you do postdoc?
0: I was looking around for a job, but an opportunity came up to go to Harvard, and I, I took it, to be honest. And I think with regards to my uh, wanting to excel in academia, that when Harvard showed up as an opportunity, I just... I. Yeah. Stopped the job search And took the opportunity to do a postdoc at Harvard And that is I cannot say And I think it's Harvard or or who I was working for But I did not have a good time up there Because of the alcohol issue was roaring its head The internal struggle that I was having the mental illness may have started to propagate and progress a little bit further cuz i was now 30 mm-hmm. 29 30 when i was up there and things just really really went out of went out of whack especially after i left there mm-hmm. i mean i could talk a little bit more about um
1: yeah 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 uh, it's important for us to form a clear picture how how it looked like you know some to, to be able to visualize it but
0: Harvard is a place that can break people. You may be the top student, you know, in your department or in your graduate school or whatever it is. But once you get all the top people in a single place,
1: Mm.
0: it can quickly break down. You know, it can quickly break a person. Really, I had the drinking aspect. Things were getting out of control. Over those two years for me, with regards to the drinking, my self esteem was in the toilet. I I mean, being bipolar, you know, I'm at Harvard, I'm on top of the world, but internally I am worthless, you know, and having to deal with that thinking and not being diagnosed with anything, it's turmoil. And the turmoil for me just got increasingly bad over those two years um so let let me go back to that because uh, i want to
1: see if i got this right that in harvard because you have all of these giants working for you it's very difficult to maintain that like the best the best status and that further hurt you because i mean at least you had this the best Scholar, the best student status, and it was difficult to maintain Harvard.
0: Yeah, I was no longer in an environment where you know I was essentially going to excel and immediately be, you know, number one at what I was doing. Mm -hmm. The other thing, too, that was beginning to become apparently clear to me is that I thought differently, and I knew that. When we had our discussion a little over a month and a half ago, I brought up the fact that I had a very difficult time with research proposals and mapping things out five years in advance mm-hmm. and thinking down the line and I'm someone who excels in the lab in the moment Education. and everyone around me was excelling at you know writing you know NIH grants and things for postdoc funding and I'm like I I, I I'm good at what I can do, yeah. but I'm not good at doing that. Mm. <laughs> and the, the the thing with Harvard too is that you know, all, all everyone's excelling. And it's it is like I was the big fish in a in a small pond of water in college and in graduate school. And then all of a sudden you're in the ocean up at Harvard and there's like way, way bigger fish after you. Um Or not not after you, but around you.
1: And also the mismatch between your strengths and the demands of the environment.
0: Yeah. And internally, because my self esteem was very bad, I put demands on myself that just couldn't be met. Mm. And then the drinking increased. It didn't increase to the extent that, you know, I wasn't going into school every day. You know, I was still doing that, but it was becoming a problem. It helped me get through graduate school. But the drinking kicked up a notch on the transition from graduate school to Harvard. And the environment, I'm not saying that the environment at Harvard is bad, but the competition up there mm-hmm. to excel and to stand out becomes so overwhelming that I just, the only real coping mechanism I had was to fall back to the alcohol. Interesting.
1: Yeah. Interesting. And you know, like I, I, get emails from parents that they have brilliant high school kids, neurodiverse, ADHD autism, they're thinking about college. and sometimes they are thinking about big name schools. And generally, again, like I will I, I try to be extremely careful giving suggestion advices because they are very contextual I in mean, these situations. and but I generally suggest like like a place that is less competitive. Might be a better place for non-traditional learners and thinkers. A place that they can be seen, their skills can be seen and acknowledged. So, and you know, I think this this your experience in Harvard is a is is aligned with what I was thinking about, like going to a place that. There is some identity issues. Then I mean, like I was always the top of in top of my class, and now struggling to, to be seen, you know. So and that that really exasperates underlying issues that may exist.
0: Oh, definitely. To kind of I I guess transition a little bit because Harvard, you know, I was there for only two years, so it was a very it was a brief period of time, and I do have like a publication. I did actually get stuff going up there, but. My my boss knew and I was not like ashamed of the drinking. I was actually kind of proud of it in a way. And but at a certain point I knew I had to quit. And that's when the addiction element kicked in and I couldn't quit. And I started doing a job search and it just wasn't panning out until I found something at the National Cancer Institute. Mm-hmm. And I thought this was going to be all to solve all my problems. I was going to have money, and I was going to make a move, and things would be different. And but I couldn't kick, kick the alcohol. So my boss actually, I think, kind of held the uh, the job up until I, I my weakest point. I had like a moment of clarity, and the mental switch that went off. I I, I stopped drinking, and I told everyone I'm done. Because I, I think I realized that things were just going to get to the point where I wasn't going to be able to proceed further anywhere hmm. because of the drinking element. So, in a way, I was kind of smart to figure that out, but not smart to get sucked into the whole alcoholism apparatus or whatever you want to mm-hmm. call it. So, you so know, you my that boss- job? Yeah, I did take the job at the National Cancer Institute. I moved to Frederick, Maryland. And that is when the next phase of really everything started. Because after I had stopped drinking, it was about two years, a year and a half, that I was on a slow mental illness decline. You know, the bipolar was there, the anxiety was there. And while I could like manage that to some extent, the schizophrenia kicked in. And then all three of these things manifested themselves in ways in which I was hearing things. I got delusional. I was seeing things and I wasn't able to maintain the job. I I was escorted out of the building because I was yelling at at like voices and escorted out back to my apartment by security. Were you receiving any professional help or? No, because I wasn't diagnosed still. Hmm. I I, they wanted me to go see a doctor and I saw just a general physician and I said you know because they wanted me to come back to work they didn't know what was going on and I I was at that point just way too off the deep end I I didn't want to go back to work I because the voice the voices were following me everywhere I was hearing voices from everybody but I, I slowly slowly De-evolved in a way, and ended up homeless. Maybe about six months later, because I was just completely off off the rails mentally. You know, I I wasn't even drinking, which is a surprising thing. I was, you know, I had AA at that point. I was attending meetings while I could, mm-hmm. because I was serious about getting sober. Mm-hmm. But then the mental illnesses all crept up, hmm. which was which was a scary time for me. I I stopped paying rent. I got an eviction notice. I eventually left the apartment. Stayed with an AA friend for a few weeks. But I wasn't, I was too afraid of anything. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I, I at that point I didn't have the mental capacity to handle life's tasks at all. Hmm. You know, paying bills or handling anything and i i slowly after three weeks of living with the AA friend he asked me to leave because i wasn't doing anything i was just kind of just hanging out and i i slowly was getting terrified of everything and i i didn't end up being homeless on the on the street between shelters and the woods you know i was on my own at that point
1: i'm sure for a lot of us it is difficult to get a clear grasp of that I'm, I'm even finding it difficult to ask the right questions and believe me I mean I have a lot of questions typically but and it's not that I want to be respectful or things like that it's just like the context is so unfamiliar and foreign to me so may, maybe what I can do
0: is like just help us understand it better Uh, I when I first left Harvard and I made a commitment to stop drinking because that's when I put the pieces together that I was not going to be able to find a job I was telling people that I was going to stop and I I did and I stopped afterwards I I was in like a mental fog for a few weeks like my brain all the alcohol went away and then there was nothing it was a cold stop and all my thoughts and everything. I don't know if the, the lack of alcohol mm-hmm. precipitated the mental illness, made yeah. it happen a little bit quicker, triggered it. I was putting it off because of the alcohol in the way, but i I was getting paranoid. I was hearing things, you know. At the time, George W. Bush was talking to me on a daily basis. Wow. When you are having these mental disorders you tend to go on the higher end of how important you are as a mentally ill person. So, you know, the president of the United States was in daily contact with me talking through what I thought was a microphone or, or something embedded in my skull. I, I thought, uh, you know, I, I, I am more than willing to get into everything with regards to the homelessness part, but I thought I was going to be tortured that was the out and the end route to all this and I was doing everything to avoid it I I was not talking to family you know my phone eventually went off the hook I initially was locked out of my apartment after you know things progressed with the eviction notice it, it just seemed to all happen in a period of a month or two maybe a little bit more all, all at once there was the anxiety I don't even know if the autism was playing a role but Definitely the schizoaffective disorder aspect, the schizophrenia and the bipolar, the delusions, the voices. I would see cartoon characters uh, mm-hmm. on occasion, not often, but voices were every day. But the visual effects, you know, I would see people's faces more. It was so surreal, thinking about going back to that time frame of my life, but. They talk a little bit more about the homelessness. I was, once my AA friend kind of kicked me out because I just, yeah, he didn't know what was going on either. Mm. I, you know, I wasn't like, oh, I'm sick. You know, I didn't even know I was sick. I was just dealing with internal, not even the best that I could because I was like, I was, needed to be committed. I, I, I wandered out of his house. And then I started walking. And I didn't leave the town I was living in, Frederick, Maryland. I would just walk around the entire town because I didn't know what else to do. First night, I slept in a porta potty. It was the coldest night. I I had to have been on record. I I was in the porta potty with the door shut. I had a a minor jacket, not anything winter heavy, because this was in the middle of winter. This happened. Stayed in there for a couple of hours, and I was like, "I gotta find somewhere warm. I'm gonna die." At least that realization came across, or you know, I was not in a good place. So I went to the hospital in town, the ER, and I just sat there in the lobby, and no one bothered me until sunrise. And that was my first night not having a real, you know, experience of having a place to sleep ever in my life.
1: At this point, did you ever go look back and think about the the glamorous ride you had, or you never bothered by that kind of idea of past? I didn't
0: even know what I didn't wow. know what was going on with me. I I mean I knew I knew that you know I had accomplished all this stuff, but I was delusional to the point that I thought I was going. I was being hunted, both by my family, by the police. And just by, I, just anyone in general, I, I I thought I was a target. Wow, in a way, I had a god complex. I'll be, I I was definitely afraid to admit this for several several years, but I I you know a lot of alcoholics tend to when they you ask them, you know they tend to think that they're somehow like a, a new god on earth or something. Wow. And I, I thought that literally was my case because of I'm not saying the AA thing put that thought into my head. I mean it could have, but I was off the rails with regards to mental state. I, I the next seven
1: Were you talking to, to anyone? Were you in contact? Did you have any friend or any
0: no, I didn't have anything at that point. I was in touch with family, you know, for the first year, and some friends for the first year I was in Frederick, Maryland. But then, you know, the phone got disconnected. I, I became fearful because I thought my family was looking to hurt me. I I literally thought that they were going to be part of the torture that I was wow. going to have to, you know, physical torture if I got caught or captured. I slipped in and out of homeless shelters sometimes I was too afraid to go to them mm-hmm. and slept out outside. I, I, I stole a winter jacket at one point and had that for warmth. So I could sleep outside at night. It, it was, it was crazy. I mean, I, I, I had at least a meal a day because of a local soup kitchen. I didn't move out of the Frederick city radius. Essentially, I mean, well, maybe the mm-hmm. county I kind of maybe walked into, but between Frederick City and Frederick County, I, I kind of just walked around, you know, I, I heard my dad talking to me. I heard my aunt, you know, and it was all negative things mm-hmm. that they were saying. I heard George Bush talking to me. Barack Obama was the next person to be elected. So he was talking to me at some point. And, and this proceeded on, this this mental degradation or de- de- degraded state for m- over half a year. Wow. And then uh, my family eventually found me. They weren't aware of anything with re- with regards to the shelter and being aware of my mental state. They weren't aware of anything concerning me. I got into the shelter because I still had my wallet. I had a license. I had a address to where I used to live. And that's what I needed to get in every night. Some nights I did go there. Some nights I was too afraid to go there. Um, I, I, I can't put any reason on it because I was not I was not a clear thinking individual as to yeah when or where yeah. I would go to the shelter or when or where I'd sleep out in the woods. I wasn't living in the woods. I just want to clarify. I didn't have a tent. You know, I wasn't camping you know or, or housed in the, in the woods. I it, I was primarily in the shelter, sleeping every night. but some days I I could not go there because you know, they're gonna get me and I had to hide yeah. or go sleep in the woods. And I'd never ever want to repeat that period of uh-huh. my life. I mean, even though I was crazy, that was I, unfortunately, I have all my teeth my fingers, my toes. I mean, a frostbite was a thing. Not a concern to me at the time, but you know, afterwards, you know, I it was I like I said, I came back, my family found me. At that point I was defeated. I was over the bell curve, you know, the the height of the mental disorder when they did find me. So I was defeated. I wasn't going to fight. They tried to get me to go back home at one point, I guess, when I at the height of my mental illness, when, right before when I was living with the AA friend. They tried to have me committed. I escaped the hospital. The cops picked me up at the uh, homeless shelter, brought me to the hospital. And I didn't know at the time, but my dad apparently wrote a letter asking for help. Mm. And the cops brought me to the hospital in town, to the, the mental ward. And I didn't know why I was there. I had no idea at the time that this letter was written or anything. And I don't—I didn't know what was going on. I started panicking. A swinging double door opened, and I bolted. Wow. And the cops were waiting for me at the homeless shelter. And I said, I know what they're trying to do. And I didn't know what I meant by that. But I, I know that they were either trying to, I don't know if medication was a concern, but I had a mission. You know, my mission was, you know, at the time, and I'm going to go in, uh, this is going to sound off the wall. I had to cure for cancer in my head because I was seeing visual chemical structures and I was going to develop a warp engine. And that was, that was, I was terrified that, and that's how delusional I was. You know, I was going to bring in the next area of space discovery and, and, and disease cure. With with everything that I was seeing and hearing, wow! And obviously, it's you know I have, I have no engineering degree. I have no means by which to develop a warp engine. But yeah, I was really off the rails. And then that was at the high point. And then, like I said, my family found me. I was defeated. I was crying when when they found me. I, I didn't fight after everything I had been through, and I came back home. I wasn't I wasn't well when I was home either. I was still hearing things. I used to walk off during the course of the day. I walked off one day in the summer when they when I like first month or two I was home and I walked about thirty miles overnight. Uh-huh. I don't know why. I just just walked off and uh, they found me again. That's something when, I, when into the hospital and I willingly went in and it obviously saved my life
1: I'm listening to you Anthony and I have no choice other than believing that I'm not a religious person at all but all of this is serving a purpose and like part of it is just like you just pay forward go through it and use your platform uh, where you are your voice to to help others and and what you're yeah. doing in this podcast is definitely toward that and i i'm i'm humble to to be part of this actually yeah. i can tell you that and you know th- this story of resilience i mean again like we 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 sometimes actually a lot we think that like our problems are the biggest in the world and i think listening to people like you puts those things that like they generate anxiety bigger than life anxiety moments for us is in perspective it i'm, I'm l- talking to you and i'm sad i'm learning overwhelmed but at the same time, I feel empowered that, like, if if a person can go down that far and bounce back, then this is something very human. This resilience.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, mental state of a five year old. My mental health was a zero. I wasn't mentally healthy at all. I today I would rate myself as seventy five mental health level. I mean, I have a little bit more to go with regards to maybe getting to an Mm -hmm. 80, but I am, you know, my story, I, I know we just hit a low point, but it's been all up from there. Yeah. I mean, I try to help out who I can. I'm not so much involved with AA these days, but I mean, an experience like this podcast, I have been involved with Facebook groups of neurodiversity and mental illness my experiences before I went homeless, I would say my mental health state was like a 35 out of 100, and then I dipped down to a zero. And I would say I'm 75 percent, a score of 75 now. I mean, I, I I am in the best mental shape of my life with regards to all this. I ha- I have the diagnoses now. I'm aware of them. I accept them. You know, there was a time when I didn't accept a diagnosis when I first got them. I didn't think there was anything wrong with me, as crazy as that sounds. But I am doing so, so much better, and a lot of that has to do with Stony Brook, too. Bringing me back to school, taking that risk. Okay, so actually that was a question of why
1: you are doing a second PhD now.
0: I didn't know how to get back into the science mm-hmm. field effectively being so let's say I left the science field in 2007 I was no wait I got to get my math correct yeah 2007 I was picked up by my family around 2009 I didn't feel capable or able to handle school until about 2014 2015 like when I said, to, you know, I came back home, I had the mental capacity for a five-year-old. I, I had to build up from that, you know, or from 2009 to 2005 years or so, be able to just handle maybe mm-hmm. classes and going back into science, you know. Be, so that five years, I was unemployable for about six or seven months. I couldn't hold a job. I mean, I was home. My family took me in, my aunt and uncle. But I didn't do anything more than maybe some stuff around the yard to keep me busy, you know, during the course of the day. And I I was meditating, even though I didn't know I was meditating a lot. I was on medication. I was slowly building up my mental state so that I went to go work at retail, you know, at a Target. And I was so grateful to have a job, actually, because I I just didn't know what I could handle. And not for nothing against Target, but at a certain point, my mental capability came back. That I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to get back into science, and it was something that I believed that I thought I could handle, and and, and I am handling it. You know, I plan to graduate within a year. You know, by have a job search for 2025 of January of 2025, but it has been a slow and gradual climb up. And there's several reasons why I've been able to progress. My family is first and foremost with helping me. Not drinking is probably tied with that but my family is definitely the main factor here i i don't drink i am sober now for 13 and a half wow. years i think i'm coming up on 14 next year so i have no no alcohol i take my medication um i'm on medication for you know some elements of autism the anxiety and the schizoaffective disorder as well. I do have PTSD, so I, I, you know, I take medication for that because what I obviously is what I, you know, showed before. Yeah. that was a traumatic thing that I, I had. How's meditation helping? I, I meditate, but I, I don't like. I just try to clear my head. Main thing is when I first got well, or let me say when I first left the hospital, when I first was committed voluntarily, I was there for two weeks I started taking medication and I found alone time to be so satisfying. I was manic in college and and graduate school. I had to have been to have all that energy to do all those things. Today, I've essentially purged myself because of meditation and and sitting out, you know, I live on a a farm property. So when I came back home, I was sitting for hours in a day, you know, on the lawn, trying to process what I've been through. And, and purging out intrusive thoughts and rushing thoughts and thoughts mm-hmm. that come from nowhere. And I, my mind is primarily like right. clean today. You know, I, I don't have things coming from me from every single angle. You know, I, I still have autistic behaviors. I love to do my shopping routines. I have routines. I have schedules really into that. The schizophrenia, I don't hear voices anymore. I don't see things anymore. That subsided. Hopefully that never, ever comes back because of the medication.
1: Do you think you will notice that if it comes back or it's going to be so real that?
0: I am hoping it is a serious concern for me looking to find a job that I may have to move away from home home is such a familiar element to me that I think it stabilizes my personality it stabilizes my mental health
1: you know nowadays um, there are so many possibilities to work remotely or like I, I'm confident you will find something that does doesn't require you yeah,
0: yeah. I, I mean I'm not I'm not yeah I'm not overly concerned about the job because I'm still yeah. a little further away from that but my main concern is I don't want to move like I'm an East Coast person, so moving me to California may not be good for my mental health and could cause a relapse. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to go. So I'm actively going to be looking at places around the country where I know I have family and support. I, I have to credit an organization called the Family Service League out here on Long Island. I don't think they're outside of Long Island, but they have been instrumental with regards to helping me with therapy and psychiatric stuff in my recovery with regards to just, you know, everything with medication and the therapy and everything. I, I Like I said, I am so, so blessed to be where I am today with regards to my growth. And it's, it's support systems. It's not drinking. It's taking the medication. It, it's family support, Stony Brook support i i would just not be where i am if it wasn't for all those things this is this is all amazing and
1: i have all the reasons to believe that things will will get gradually even better and 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 i have reasons to say that it's not just for you to feel good because now that you have started participating in many cool activities like this i mean that the meeting that we had a month ago or or this podcast this means that like you are internally you feel powerful enough that you can extend your hand to help others you know so so that, oh, that yes that's a great indication that things are moving in the right direction
0: there there was a time where i wouldn't talk about anything like you know what i went through when i was homeless what I went through in my experiences with relationships, you know, either romantic or social, the difficulty that I had with that because of the internal thinking process that I had. I, I am just so blessed just to be able to, you know, by doing the right thing, being able to help other people. I have been trying to expand that a little bit because in helping other people, you really do help yourself. That
1: is, that is, I've said that over and over in this podcast, at some point, the line between them becomes so blurry that you don't even know whom you're helping. Is it just like, am I doing it because of my, so sometimes I think it is just, is it because of me or because of others? I mean, because you, you see that effect, you're trying to help others meaningfully and you get the benefit from that. And It's interesting.
0: I mean, I know diagnoses for various things are much easier to get these days. You know, when you're younger, you have to, I mean, there are signs and even though the individual in question may not agree or or accept the diagnosis, but at least family can be aware, you know, my family had no idea I was going homeless until probably I, I went homeless. I wasn't really that communicative and... I'm sure they thought something was up, but then when I kind of disappeared off the grid and until they found me, you know, half a year six, seven months later or whatever it was, it just I, I don't want anyone to go through that. I, I really don't. It's not not that it's not necessary, yeah. but it's so painful to and, and you know, fortunately I, I don't harbor any anger at anyone. You know, this is a life experience for me and I'm so much better off for it. But it was so so devastating it's
1: for it's so un, unfair for me to say that and i understand that i acknowledge that that you couldn't do the things that you're doing now without that painful experience
0: having lost everything coming from that perspective of having nothing other than the clothes that i was wearing my whole outlook on how I handle myself, yeah. what causes anxiety, what I get worked up about, which I don't really get worked up about anything really, but it has drastically changed the yeah. priorities. It changes your life perspective. It does. And I know a lot of people had said, you know, recently the COVID experience changed a lot of people with regards to what their priorities yeah. in life are. So that might be something that people can relate to with regards to what's important in life. And where energy should yep. be spent, with regards to what you pursue to make yourself happy. That's true. That's
1: a very good point. Yeah. This this is awesome, Anthony. I I, I knew it is going to be an amazing episode. Honestly, it exceeded all the expectations I had. So. So for us to wrap up, I don't want to take too much of your time. I typically. I, I think I have an idea about like about your answer to this question, but I, I, I really want to hear it from you. First of all, how easy it is for you to discuss those. I mean, like definitely it's emotionally taxing for sure, but what gave you that courage to come out and talk about this so openly? Because this podcast is going to be available publicly.
0: Oh, I, I'm aware that yeah, no, I know, and I'm totally comfortable discussing this. I mean, a lot of people have you know that made that I know that may hear this will know of this information, but I'm open about it because you know, one, this is a disability. You know, the the autism can be is seen as a disability as well as a schizoaffective. So I, I'm going to be dealing with this for the rest of my life, in some form or another, and having been so closed up for so many years to not being able to talk about you know why I thought I was different or something I mean this is people should feel comfortable talking about this stuff there shouldn't be any kind of prejudice or bias or stigma that's the word I'm looking for stigma there shouldn't be because if you don't talk about this you know or or you know if you see a family member who may be going through this and they're not diagnosed just to try to have an intervention or, or somebody to help them out to understand, you know, how alone they may feel because they're different, you know, they feel different to normal people. I-, I think it's so important to have this discussion so that, you know, someone doesn't have to go through what I went through or, you know, takes, you know, some inspiration from the fact that, you know, I, I went from having, you know, I, you know, everything essentially and then to lose it all and and to rebuild back up even when i was back doing the student activities i there's some element of me that had you know some kind of uh, community service Mm -hmm. element and because of the disability and you know school is taxing you know and graduate school is okay fortunately i am handling it pretty well but my ability to do community service and things that i would like to do there's only so much time and energy i have in the course of a day so doing something like this or you know the online aspect or even you know i've been trying to find avenues with local organizations to to kind of on the weekends to try to help out with homeless problems or mental health issues so yeah, I'm, I'm also curious
1: how that experience has shaped the way you look at your second PhD, your graduate experience, how, if any, what was the
0: impact of it? Having been through this before i'm a little bit more relaxed in a way that i'm you know i'm not as dreadful as with regards to my thinking maybe my first one that if something doesn't work it, can, it could be the end of the world because i always know science always kind of expands it can grow and you troubleshoot and you know i'm kind of in that situation now where i'm, I'm trying to figure out something so i can actually finish but Again, the the homelessness aspect has kind of relaxed me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as weird as that sounds, right, I, I totally get that. There's so many things that don't cause internal turmoil with me anymore that used to. So I'm much more comfortable with myself. I'm able to talk about these, you know, these mental health issues, neurodiversity, where I wasn't able to for, you know. I would go to therapy sessions and I would never breach these topics, you know, cause I just, I, it was not something I ever did for, you know, the first 30 years of my life to have these conversations or to talk about these things openly. That's interesting.
1: So going back to the questions that I, I wrap up the podcast with, I asked our guests okay. to tell us what would be your piece of advice for a 12, 13 year old student in high school you can envision you can imagine yourself trying to give advice to your 12 years old self
0: don't feel like you're ever alone there's usually someone who can understand talk to your parents if you feel like you're alone or if you're being bullied because you're different i know how difficult it can be to maybe open that conversation but no one's going to be angry yeah. with you. No one's going to make fun of you. Your parents are not going to make fun of you if you tell them that you you feel different, that you are, you know, you some a lot of people, you know, with autism know they have autism even before they have. You know, I I, I knew I had autism probably before I got a diagnosis. I, I kind of determined that I had that when, when I was able to come to that conclusion. I mean, if you feel like you're you're in that age range, you're twelve or thirteen, and you think something's different about you, open a dialogue with you know your parents, or if you're seeing someone you can talk to with regards to maybe a therapist or something. No one's going to judge you in, in those environments, and I would I definitely would make an effort to yes. make have those discussions take place.
1: This is a great piece of advice. The second question is: Now imagine your college age, yours of yours. Maybe eighteen, nineteen. What would be the advice to Anthony back then?
0: When I was eighteen or nineteen, I was the first year of college. I mean, or college in general. colleges. age. That, that college in general. I had such a good time in college, though. I mean, I'm trying to think of, you know, take advantage of, you know, the opportunities that college can afford to you, the social aspects. You know, I didn't take advantage of all the social aspects, but because, you know, it was just Mm -hmm. an internal barrier for me to open up to people. But if you're living on a campus, you know, get involved in the student activities aspect of it. You know, have, you know, have some actual fun that may not involve drinking. Mm -hmm. I mean, coming from my aspect of the alcohol. I mean, you know, take advantage of everything that you can while you, because those years never come back. I mean, you're going to be an adult for the rest of your life with responsibilities and colleges is in a way to have some fun, get connected with some people do, you know, uh, activities Mm -hmm. or, you know, planning or getting involved in, you know charitable organizations okay. or community, you know, with the community or yeah. something. that That is
1: definitely something that we, we can in- integrate more formally community engagement in our education. In some of the majors, it is so inherent into it and we have to start benefiting.
0: Science is so isolatory. Yeah. I mean, coming from my background, and I know your background as well in engineering, I mean, science can just be very I isolatory agree. with regards to lab and, you know, that the whole thing is just not tuned to being social,
1: really. But we are doing all of this thing to serve the society at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, Anthony. I learned a lot. I enjoyed being with you listening to you and uh, thank you very much thank you very much for sharing your story with us i'm sure there will be people out there that they will listen to this and it's going to change something for them it already had impact on me so i'm sure that this is going to be impactful for our listeners also thank you for listening to squarepex we hope you enjoyed this episode Our podcast aims to raise awareness around neurodiversity, advocating for inclusive educational methods, and enhancing belonging for all students. We would love to hear your feedback. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share your biggest takeaways from this episode. Your reviews and feedback helps us improve. You can also leave us a message at squarepexpodcast.com, and we might feature it on the show. Thank you for being a part of the Squarepex community.